One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to NewsHour Extra. This is Owen Bennett-James. We've got a great topic this week, one that hardly gets any coverage at all, until Elizabeth Davis said, you know what, we've got to cover this. So tell us about elections on Monday in... The Philippines. Uh, Yeah, Uh, not a country that we cover very often, uh, apart from, I think, most recently, uh, Typhoon Haiyan, or Yolanda, as it it was known there, uh, which was a couple of years ago now. Um, It's a country I looked at a bit at university, uh, surprisingly enough. Very interesting politics, and of course everyone has heard of Imelda Marcos and the Marcos family, but... um, not much from the country since then. Uh, and the more I looked into it, the more these elections on Monday seemed p- particularly interesting. And there are lots of parallels with the United States. This very populist candidate, it goes much further, actually, than Donald Trump. Yeah. But <laughs> r- rather in the same way, plain talking, getting away from the establishment and really breaking through. Yeah, I mean, we um, got some what we call Vox Pops, uh, man on the street, interviews with voters. And, you know, what a lot of them were saying, who were also supporters of his was, you know, he's honest, he's straight talking. Uh, you know, I don't like these uh, elite politicians who, th- who feel entitled to the position um, and they want someone different. Yes, well, it is a very, very interesting subject. It's been fascinating learning about it. And the leading candidate you're talking about is Rodrigo Duterte, who's like sort of Donald Trump unshackled. I mean, he says things like, if you can't kill, you shouldn't be president. And then there's the vice presidential candidate whose father stole billions of dollars from the country. The son is called Bong Bong. He's the son of Ferdinand Marcos and the shoe-loving Imelda Marcos, and Bong Bong stands by them. So we'll be looking at the candidates in the Philippines elections, which come up on Monday, and also the outgoing president. In a country suffused with corruption, President Aquino leaves office the most trusted official in the country. He's achieved a steady 6% growth rate. But then again... When you have Filipino levels of poverty, 6% isn't enough. And in the second half of the programme, we'll take a look at those ties between Washington and Manila. The Philippines was a US colony until 1946, but you won't find any Robert Mugabe-style resentment there. Polls consistently show around 90% of Filipinos view the US favourably. And we've got a great panel today in Manila. We have Richard Haydarian, who's Assistant Professor of Political Science at De La Salle University in the Philippines. We have Eric Gutierrez, a long-time Filipino political analyst and investigative reporter. He's now a Senior Advisor for Governance at Christian Aid here in the UK. We have John Seidel from the London School of Economics. He's the Professor of International and Comparative Politics there. And we have Pauline Eady, Assistant Professor at the University of Nottingham, and Deputy Director of that university's Institute for Asia-Pacific Studies. And we're going to start, first of all, before we hear from our panellists, with a correspondent who's there, following the elections, covering them. Jonathan Head, you're just back from an election rally. Tell us about it. Well, this was a a, a rather, I would say, slightly downscaled rally by the son you mentioned of uh, former President Marcos. There has been an extraordinary Marcos comeback in this campaign with um, his son a spitting image of his father, I have to say, uh, also called Ferdinand Marcos, running for the vice president's job. The vice president and president are elected separately. um, But when you see him up there with his very slick campaign, uh, incredible sort of amount of razzmatazz with it, and 
frankly, the star of the show tonight, his mother, Imelda Marcos. Um, she's in poor health. She's 86 years old. But she walked in there like a diva, like she still ran the country. She was walking like the queen. It was most extraordinary to see her waft in. You know, the Marcos family are back as though they never went. Um, and it is extraordinary to see. It's a very well-run campaign, an appealing, attractive man. Um, he had a very slick message, lots of humour cracked at the expense of his rivals. Uh, when I asked him about whether his father's uh, notorious reputation, of course his mother's as well, for corruption and, and repression, whether that was a problem, he was quite taken aback. He said, a problem? He said, no, my father's reputation is a boost. And I have to say, and I've been up in his home province, province in the north, near Locus Norte, but also talking to people in Manila, it's true, Filipinos have... 30 years after the, the first ever people power uprising, have largely put it behind them. Many of them are very young. You know, more than 50% of voters weren't even born at the time of the people power uprising in 1986. And many others, I think, just love the show. In a way, the, the, the democratic process here has delivered so little, but is done with there's so much of it. I mean, there's huge numbers of officials being elected. They have elections and, and, and sort of halfway elections every three years. There's so much of it. In a way, Filipinos get into the performance, and frankly, nobody performs as well to a crowd as the Marcos family. Well, that is quite baffling as to how that could all be forgotten, so we'll ask our panel about that later. Just, just tell us a bit more about who is being elected on Monday and, and a bit about how the campaign works. There are always very, very intense elections because of the numbers of officials. You've got half the Senate, so there's not very many people, there's only a 24-member Senate, You've got mayors, you've got governors, you've got local town councils. Um, in Ilocos Norte, where I was, uh, 248 posts, and it's quite a lightly populated province, are up for election. So when voters go to the polls, uh, they've got a pretty formidable list of officials they've got to choose from, usually 40 or 50 names there. The country is absolutely plastered with a fantastically colourful confetti of posters. It, it does in some ways feel like a, a performance, partly because there's just so many faces out there, but partly because so many of the names are the same. The dominant families are there in every province. And, and when you see a different name, you discover they're related to the dominant family. For me, it's very striking covering Southeast Asia where democracy is either in reverse or very dysfunctional in the rest of the region. And yet, if you look at Thailand, for example, where they've given up on democracy and the military's taken over, the running of the country has delivered far more effectively uh, in terms of reducing poverty. Uh, and then look at Vietnam, run by a communist authoritarian government where, where there's tremendous economic growth. In the Philippines, 30 years of democracy that, that arrived with such hope in 1986 in terms of reducing poverty, has delivered almost nothing. And in some ways, I think it, it makes a mockery of this democracy, and yet Filipinos still join in with tremendous voter turnout every time. Jonathan Head there, just back from that bong-bong rally. Well, let's uh, understand a bit more about these elections. First of all, by just running through the candidates, and they're a fairly colourful bunch. And uh, we're going to start with you, if I can, John Seidel. Can you tell us about Rodrigo... Duterte, otherwise known as Duterte Harry in some appalling pun on the film. Uh, just who is he? Why do people compare him to Trump? What's he like? Um, Duterte is best known uh, for many years of serving as mayor in the Mindanao city of Davao, where he's closely associated with a very hardline, violent uh, uh, response to crime, drug pushing and the like, and is openly claiming involvement with the uh, death squads that uh, date back there till the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, he just says, I, I kill people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And he's also made a number of you know very crude, uh, sexist comments. Uh, he's made comments about the Pope. He, he's made all sorts of you know very ugly remarks. Uh, he's anti-smoking. He's uh, in favor of gay marriage. He, he's got some progressive tweaks to his uh, you know resume and profile, but he's. Uh, very ugly when it comes to the violence and the sexism. Yeah, because I think in his in his town th- there was a nun who was raped, and he and he was making these incredible yeah. comments about it, saying I would have been the first there and things like this. Yes. So can can anyone else on the panel explain to me his appeal? May I jump in? Yeah, this is uh, Richard Haydarian. Richard Haydarian from Manila. Since I'm, I'm I'm here in the Philippines, perhaps maybe I should uh, chip in on that. The fact of the matter is that Duterte represents a new breed of a politician in Philippines. Uh, for the past 30 years, uh, the candidates were either mostly the so-called reformists, uh, p- represented by Cory Aquino and the Aquinos in general, or populists, uh, represented by Arab Estrada, former uh, president. But I think when you talk about Duterte, he's, he's, he's a new breed. He's, he's more like a strongman demagogue. But I think in a lot of ways what explains Duterte's appeal in the Philippines is that he's now seen as the most authentic candidate. We're going to talk about the other candidates in a moment. First, let's just hear a bit of Rodrigo Duterte, just to give us a flavour of the sort of things he says. I will eradicate corruption, criminality and drugs. If I become the president, I will order the military and the police to hunt down the drug lords, the big ones, and kill them. Kill the drug lords and so on. Pauline Edie, it's, 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 well, it, it, it's much further than the Americans have got with Trump, isn't it? I think his appeal is because I mean, 90% of the voters are the D&E class, in other words, the, the most poor in the Philippines. And I think his appeal is because they are sick of being left out of the economic prosperity that's that's being bandied about. And they are the people who have to live in these communities and deal with drug dealers, lack of amenities, living in shanty communities. They are the people that have to live with the problems of the traffic in Manila and the lack of law and order. And they are hearing his message that he might actually bring about change. Someone like Mar Rojas, who is part of the elite, has been part of the previous administration, can claim all these things, but actually what have you done in the last six years and what will change? Mar Rojas is another candidate. We're just about to talk about him. But first of Mm. all, John Seidel, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I just wanted to add that if you look at the polls, they've consistently shown that, in fact, Duterte has at least a strong support among the so-called ABC mm. uh, candidate, the sort of voters, the, the profile of more middle-class voters. And, and this suggests that there's a, a wider sort of disillusionment, which that authenticity that Richard mentioned earlier, I think, really um, speaks to. And Eric, Eric Gutierrez, just to bring you in, I mean, the point, the reason we're spending so long talking about him is he might well win. Yeah, uh, you know, you know the, the popularity of uh, Duterte is not uh, unprecedented. You know, when Estrada ran for president, uh, they threw everything at him. You know, the mudslinging on, you know, that he was, uh, he he was dumb, he was uh, corrupt, he was a womanizer, and all sorts of things. But you know, 
it never stopped because uh, people uh, identified uh, with him you know that he's one of our own he's uh, or at least you know they can imagine themselves sharing a table drinking beer or eating with with uh, Joseph Estrada and I think the same phenomenon is happening with the uh, with Duterte right now that uh, you know despite all his uh, curses and everything uh, it's talk that uh, would be n- normal in any street corner and uh, right it's that strange democratic test that they have in the US as well. He would rather have a beer with. I think, I think we'd better move on to some of the other candidates. Who can tell me about Mar Rojas? Richard Haydarian, tell us about Mar Rojas. In many ways, people see him as an antithesis to Rodrigo Duterte. He's a very polished person. He's a graduate of Wharton. He is, in many ways, like a grandson of the Rockefellers and the Roosevelt. Uh, his grandfather was the first Filipino post-independence president, while on his uh, mother's side, he comes from the Araneta uh, business industrialized family. So he, he was absolutely born with a silver spoon in his mouth. John Seidel, I just want to pick up on this issue of the families being so important in Filipino politics because there are a few families who seem to have a lot of economic and political power and to dominate everything. Can you just talk us through that? Sure. Um, in the case of both Rojas and the incumbent president, Aquino, they both come from old landed families of Chinese mestizo extraction. And these are families who, back in the 19th century and the early 20th century, began to accumulate tens of thousands of hectares of land, which then uh, was planted to sugar and which enjoyed special access to the American market. They had special loans that allowed them to uh, build sugar refineries or centrals. They then moved upstream into industry and banking and so forth. And they combined politics and uh, business in a kind of self-perpetuating oligarchical fashion. So someone like Mar Rojas carries the kind of stigma of that, as well as having been in the public limelight for the six years of the Aquino administration, during which time as Secretary of the Interior and local government, he you know, failed to really do very much and proved very insensitive to the victims of the typhoon and the Visayas. In contrast with the macho womanizer, he's a notorious mama's boy, like the yeah. current president, and, and people want to change. All right, so, so, so he's, he's, the, he's the sort of establishment candidate. The outgoing president wants him, and you're saying he's from one of these big families, a lot of political power, a lot of economic power these families have. All right, I should say we've got four leading candidates we're talking about, and they do help us understand how the Philippines works a bit, I think. It's, it's, it's fascinating listening to you all. So we've had Rodrigo Duterte, the populist. We've had Mar Rojas, the sort of insider, big family politician. And there's another one from a big political family. Perhaps, Eric Gutierrez, you could tell us a bit about J. Jamar Binay. He has built his own uh, political family in uh, in Makati, and uh, his uh, daughter is a senator, another daughter is running for mayor, and, you know, it's all in the family, and uh, that's uh, how they have tried to consolidate their power, anti-dictatorship movement. You know, w- one thing that uh, Binay is actually good at is really doing his homework in terms of uh, building these networks of uh, relationships with the uh, with families and uh, with people, as uh, he has himself uh, flaunted, he had been to sixty thousand wakes in his uh, political career. Can I just stop you there for a moment? Yeah. Did you just say he's been to sixty thousand wakes? You mean funerals? Yeah, funerals. Uh, Filipino politicians invest in that kind of uh, relationship building when they, you know, they present themselves as somebody who's approachable, somebody who's there in your time of grief. That's what he's done over all this, uh, you know, this 30 plus years that he's been a politician. 
And that's also the reason why when he ran for vice president in uh, 2010, uh, nobody was expecting that he was uh, going to be elected. Oh, I see. Uh, so he was, came from nowhere because he's yeah, got this yeah. amazing sort of political history. And he's the current vice president. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, John Seidel, you wanted to say something about uh, J.J. Mabinai, and and just to make the point, he's faced a lot of corruption allegations, hasn't he? Yes. Up until about a year ago, he was really the favourite candidate uh, in terms of all the polls and all of the sort of political machinery behind him he'd accumulated. He's not just mayor of a city, but the city he's mayor of, Makati, is the richest city, the financial business district of the country. And he used his vantage point of control over that city and its huge financial resources to twin the city with cities around the country country and to develop this machinery. He also has some of that populist flavor um, uh, in terms of his personality picked up through his relationship with Estrada. The last thing to mention is, like Duterte, he's a local executive. Remember, in a presidential system, people tend to go for decisive characters. And if you're a senator, if you're a legislator, as in the United States, it's rare for a senator to win elections. You're better off if you're a governor and have the modus operandi and persona of an executive. Someone helps you in elections. Someone who's done something. Right. So we've heard from the populist uh, Rodrigo Duarte, the insider Mar Rojas, the 60,000 wake man, J. Jamar Benai, and Richard Haydarian, can you take us through the fourth candidate we're going to discuss, Grace Poe? Right. Uh, Grace Poe is the fresh face in this race. She's a neophyte senator. She's the daughter of the former uh, action hero, like the Sean Connor of the Philippines, Fernando Poe Jr., who actually ran in 2014 in an election against former President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo. After he passed away, Grace Poe, who was actually in the United States during that time, living with her family, she actually also became an American citizen in 2001. She came back to the Philippines in the mid-2000s. She, in many ways, is a hybrid candidate. She has populist elements to her because of her fad's father's name, but but she's also seen as a reformist. She's very articulate. She's very well-educated. I call her a crowdsourced president if ever she becomes a president because she's open to advice from the best in the business. She has been the leading candidate for the past eight months, but uh, it seems that in the past two weeks she lost steam. One has to do with the fact that her legal ordeal is beginning to chip away at her luster. She faces consistently, you know, eligibility issues because she used to be an American citizen and then she gave up her American citizenship again to become a Filipino. So some question whether she meets the requirements for being a natural-born Filipino because, by the way, she was also an orphan. I'm going to just uh, ask you to listen to some voters because we've, we've been out speaking to some voters and then we'll get your comment on that before we wrap up this first half of the programme. So these are people who were out and about, I think, just today. They are in Manila, I should say. We asked why the election is important to them. Well, this election is important because the Filipinos have been um, expecting too much for this current uh, government. Their expectation has not been met. So um, I think they're hoping for a new system, a new um, political leader. At this time, we need a leader that would have the guts to discipline people and would also implement a big change on Filipinos. Um, supporting uh, Mr. Duterte. He's a strong guy that could uh, possibly solve a lot of problems that we have here at, in the Philippines. Peace and order is really a major issue here in the Philippines. Actually, I think it's one of the major umbrella problems that lead to the other problems in the Philippines, like uh, traffic, crime, and poverty, of course. I think it's all related to peace and order. 
Yeah, I'm 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 before Duterte. Yeah, I think I belong to the working class. I'm sick and tired of all the what's going on with the, the government setup and even the public services and of the corruption scandals and all those things like uh, what's really going on. I'm supporting the least of the evils, in my opinion, Marrojas. He won't bring radical change, but he, he'll keep us afloat. So I think that's the best we can wish for right now. Between him, a dictator, a documented thief, and yeah. <laughs> there we are, a voter very unimpressed with the choice being presented to him. Now, the way, the way you all describe it, you can see why a populist candidate would break through, because there's a lot of talk of establishment here, cronies, big families, making money, using political influence, economic power, and so on. So, just to understand how Rodrigo Duete might win this, can you perhaps help us, John Seidel, on, on the system? Because you don't actually need that many votes to win, right? Because it's a, it's a first-past-the-post, one-round election. Right. You can win, as has been the case in uh, a number of previous elections, by plurality. Uh, and the key question here is machine-produced votes or rather popularity votes. And the two are intertwined insofar as the popularity of some candidates gives strength and esprit de corps to the machinery uh, of, of that candidacy. So Rojas, for example, he has all the advantages of the incumbent administration. He's throwing around money for vote buying and for local machine politicians to support him. But they may, of course, junk him or take the money and run, given that his victory is, is all but implausible. But Pauline Edie, if you've got four, no, you've got five candidates. We've only, we, there's one much more minor candidate who we haven't described. Mm. But if you've got five candidates... And it's a first-past-the-post, one-round election. You probably only need, I don't know, you could, you could win with 21%. Uh, you know, so, so, so it's quite possible to break through on, on a fairly low popular base. Yeah, potentially that would be the case. Um, but one of the problems that they might have come Monday is that they won't have a result. So one of the problems that we might have on Monday is that there might be a problem with the technology, we may well see next week allegations of um, vote tampering. We don't know. Gosh, People, yeah. that's a whole new element of problems with the process. In 2010, voters had to be extended during the day because the queues were so long. If the electricity went south or the internet connection goes, then you are running into trouble. Because it's electronic voting. OK. I think the uh, one key would be the turn out really in, in, in this election. So like when uh, I've looked at some of the figures, when Estrada won in 1998, uh, he won about 40% of the vote on a 66% turnout. So, mm. you know, 34% uh, did not vote. And, you know, the, the surveys right now, what they show are the voting preferences, uh, but uh, will not, you know, it's not actually saying uh, who's going to go out there and vote. So in theory, uh, I mean, this is just hypothetical. Now, even if uh, Duterte has uh, much of the voter preference, which is 32-33%, you know, can he get out those voters uh, to, to actually vote? Well, actually, yeah. sometimes what happens is candidates will send buses yeah, to yeah, convey exactly. their voters yeah, yeah, to the but, polling stations. Yeah. They will also um, lay on trips in the other direction so that people are not available to vote if you think that someone is not going to vote for you. Well, yes, I see. Yeah. Bu buses to a polling station is quite normal. Buses away from one. <laughs> no, that can happen too. Just before we wrap up this half, John Seidel, can you explain one thing to me? The Philippines has had 6% growth. I mean, that is, by most standards, a pretty impressive rate, and yet it doesn't seem to have cut through. 
Yeah, it's pretty impressive uh, if you look across the region, and it's pretty impressive compared to previous presidencies and, and the broad sense in the Philippines for uh, as long as many can remember that the country really was lagging behind its neighbors. Now it seems to be overtaking them. That said, um, you know, the glass is really half empty for many people. Uh, the poverty rate remains stubbornly high, um, calculated by different measures, and, and social inequality remains very high. You know, so I, I think that uh, you know, there, there's a wealth as ever of corruption scandals and inefficiencies and, and deficiencies on the part of the government for people to focus on. Nadan, I, I want to ask you about foreign policy issues. Uh, we'll also talk about the insurgency later on in the programme. But these foreign policy issues are very uh, striking because the first point we need to make is that there is this long-standing, very close relationship with the United States. So, Richard Haydarian, can you just kick us off in this half and tell us, you know, around the world it is pretty unusual to have opinion polls that show 90% positive views of America which is what has been the case in the Philippines for years and years. Talk us through why that is. First of all, there's an element of historical amnesia, I think, in the Philippines. And a lot of Filipinos actually tend to look at the United States as their knight in shining armor. Uh, in fact, in 2013, more Filipinos had a positive approval rating of the United States than Americans themselves of their country. So that just gives you an idea of how far the Filipinos are appreciative of the United States. I think uh, if you look at the history textbooks in the Philippines, it was not until college days that I got to realize that you know the Philippine insurrection was actually not a Philippine insurrection. It was a Filipino revolution for independence against Americans who betrayed the Filipinos to the Spanish. Uh, in 1898. And during the Cold War, of course, the United States had military bases here in the Philippines and in many ways was seen as the protector of the Philippines against external threats. But also in terms of internal threats, the United States has been a major ally of the Philippines in terms of fighting against insurgency, whether communists or Islamists, or whether it's, it's against you know uh, terrorist groups like Abu Sayyaf or I ISIS sympathizers in Mindanao. And that's why it has been seen very positively, not to mention the Americans have also been always consistent a huge source of assistance for humanitarian disaster relief operations. So in 2013, when uh, the Haiyan or Yolanda superstorm hit the Philippines, it were around 6,000 American troops were mobilized to provide food and supply and other emergency relief materials for Filipinos in places that the Philippine army itself could not reach. And if you look at the Philippine media, intelligentsia, and the security establishment in general, they have a very positive uh, portrayal of the uh, United States. And I think in many ways the U.S. soft power in the Philippines is very much hegemonic. And that explains why the United States has a very positive relationship with the Philippines. Now, in the past six years, precisely because of the rise in tensions in the South China Sea and territorial disputes within the Philippines and China, the Philippines has tilted more and more into the American orbit. OK, well, let's just take that issue, because you're now uh, bringing up the issue of China as well, and that's obviously central to this. And as you've introduced for us, there is this contest between China and the United States and the Philippines, and it's, it's quite interesting to understand. So to understand that, can someone help me uh, go through what China is doing in the exclusive economic zone of the Philippines and in these territorial issues? John Seidel, can you just explain to us what China is doing? Well, China has been laying claim to these small islands or atolls uh, and areas that, that really lie within the uh, Philippines' greater exclusive economic zones and uh, also establishing kind of permanent structures. And there have been incursions by various kinds of Chinese vessels within Philippine waters and the like. Um, on the American side, however, it's worth noting that the United States has been ramping up its uh, military involvement and presence in the Philippines and creating new, small, fairly obscurely located bases 
and that the shift that unfolded since 2010-2011 was not really just on the Philippine initiative. It was part of the broader American pivot and really strong move to you know, contain China as it sees it across all of Asia. Because I'd understood that Obama, some people were accusing him of not having shown enough support for the Philippines, and that's why China sort of flexed its muscles. But you're saying that's not right. Well, I think up until 2010, across the Asia-Pacific, if you look, you know, going down from the Korean Peninsula and Japan and Okinawa, down all the way to the Philippines and Vietnam, there was a great sense of ambiguity and uh, yeah, perhaps an, an insufficiently proactive response on the Obama administration's part. And that shifted in 2010-2011, all and, across and, and Asia. Now it's, and now it's, now it's a contest. So, Pauline Edie, can you explain to us that contest and how it relates to this election? Because we've heard that various candidates have got different positions on this. So how do you see the election affecting the China and the United States? It depends who gets in. I mean, Duterte is on record uh, when the United States criticised him over his comments of rape of a missionary, his reaction to that was just basically to tell him to keep out of the business of the Philippines. So if he comes in, then potentially there would be problems ahead. But then you have perhaps this differing relationship with China. Yeah, Eric Gutierrez, so t- yeah. take us through the alternatives, because we've heard that Duterte you know, may well make quite big compromises for China in return for infrastructure investment. Are are there other candidates who who are saying, no, 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 we're going to stick with the United States? The approach that the Philippine government right now has done is to make it a multilateral discussion, so involve the United Nations. They filed a case for arbitration with the UN, and China did not like this because they want a bilateral negotiation with the Philippines. But the Philippines knows that's difficult for a small country negotiating with, with, the, with a big power. Can, can you just, power. Can just yeah. explain that case for us? What did the Philippines take to the international system? They're asking the UN to intervene, and because this it's not just the Philippines and China, but Vietnam and other claimant countries as well in that area. So okay, but we're talking yeah. here about the Chinese building these islands in the South yeah, China yeah, Sea well, yeah, and, yeah. And, and in areas that the Philippines would say was their sovereign waters, right? Yeah, so it's a uh, take it to an arbitration court, and then the court makes decisions on uh, you know who has the rightful claims on each of those islands and atolls. Richard Haydarian. Yes, may I step in? Actually, the decision to take uh, China to the court under. Uh, Article 287, Annex 7 in January 2013 was after China wrested control of the Scarborough Shoal, which is around 220 kilometers away the Philippine shores, but 900 kilometers away from the closest Chinese shore. And during that time, the United States was not being helpful. They were equivocating on whether the mutual defense treaty with the Philippines was going to apply to it, and the Philippines did not have the military capability to wrest back control of that shoal, so they were desperate. They took the case to the international court. Now, the case at the international court is expected to finalize by June, so in the coming month, we may see a final verdict. And it's not on the question of sovereignty claims, because that's not the mandate of the United Nations Convention Law of the Sea and the arbitral tribunal that is overseeing it. What the Philippines is trying to do is to indirectly nullify China's nine-dash line claims, which covers much of the South China Sea and its so-called historical claims in the area. But it also wants the international court to censure China and tell China not to occupy low tide elevations such as Subir Reef, Mischief Reef, and the Scarborough Shoal, which fall within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone, not to mention the Philippines also wants the arbitral tribunal to censure China on the ecological crisis and the harassment on Filipino fishermen that it has been visiting within that exclusive economic zone. So this is a very important 
Central Arbitration case and it has implication for all other claimant countries in the region. But the problem is there is no assurance whether President Duterte, if he becomes elected, will support this arbitration outcome or whether he will put it aside and treat it just as an advisory opinion. Pauline Needy, this is going to be, yeah, we're going to hear a lot about this, aren't we? Yes, I would think so, because it's it's of fundamental importance. It's the core, really, of the Asian pivot, I would say, where the US is trying to, with more or less success, really move itself away out of the Middle East. So it has influence over the South China Sea and also the gateway to the Pacific. I've heard the Philippines being described as being in the dragon's lair. It has the air bases, it has the ports that the US would be able to get access to. And I think whoever comes in next as president is really going to have to balance that that Asian pivot, the relationship between the US, China and all the other countries around the South China Sea. John Seidel. I I guess um, I would caution against taking too seriously Duterte's comments uh, about his likely response and, and, and policies should he become president with regard to China, both because he hasn't really spent a great deal of time or energy or invested a lot in the issue, but also given the vested interests of the military establishment and more generally of the establishment in Manila in terms of the relationship with the United States. And it would be a quite an unusual Philippine president who would really monkey around with that relationship and all the uh, the advantages given to the establishment. You can even see that in Thailand, where after the coup and the, the sort of tense relations with the United States, they've played around with warmer relations with China, but it hasn't gone very far. Yeah, and I mean, it must say, it occurs to me that if you're a populist politician, as Duterte is, that the obvious thing would be to assert Filipino nationalism against Chinese encroachments. I mean, that would be a much easier pitch, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, if, you, if you're under any kind of international censure and if you want to try and consolidate some form of, what do people say about Duterte, authoritarian rule, you're going to want or need some kind of relationship with the United States to enable that to happen, especially in terms of the armed forces of the Philippines, given the influence the United States has there. It just seems implausible to think that he will you know, be operating so freely in foreign policy. Pauline Edie, you want to say something? Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say that whoever is the next president has to think very carefully about his relationship with the military. The military in the Philippines is very politicised. What happened in 1986 was actually a meeting of the military and the left, which is the regime's worst nightmare because then they came together and, and we saw people power. Already this talk about coup attempts being made against Duterte if he comes into power. Under Cory Aquino's reign, there was, I think, nine coup attempts. There was under Marco Pagal Arroyo as well. So whatever the military relationship is with the Philippines and the United States, the president has to keep the actual armed forces of the Philippines on an even keel because he doesn't want them turning on him. There's one more topic we need to understand before we uh, end the programme, and that's the insurgencies, because we hear from them from time to time. Uh, there are the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. There's this organisation which we hear much more of, I think, in, in, in recent years, Abu Sayyaf. Who can explain to me, Richard Haydarian, perhaps you could have a stab at it, the difference between those two? They're, they're, they're both uh, Islamist organisations, aren't they? And what, what, what are they fighting for? Okay, so if you look at the Philippines, it has 
been suffering from one of the longest insurgencies, uh, perhaps in human history. Both the communist and Islamist insurgency are at least four decades long. But the problem was that there was another splinter group called the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And the Moro Islamic Liberation Front is now considered as the most powerful insurgency group with around 12,000 troops. And it controls significant parts of central Mindanao, which is the southern region of the Philippines. But throughout the past six years, there has been this very fruitful and effective and sustained negotiation between the leadership of MILF, led by a relatively moderate uh, pe uh, person, Murad Ibrahim, and the Aquino administration. Everything was going fine until in January 25, 2015, there was a very unfortunate incident whereby Filipino special forces from the Philippine National Police were massacred by uh, members of the more Islamic Liberation Front when the Filipino uh, special forces wanted to kill a terrorist from Malaysia called Marwan. And Marwan was being actually given refuge by uh, another splinter group from the Moro Islamic Liberation Front called the Bangsamoro Islamic Freedom Fighter. So when the Filipino Special Forces entered the area, they got into gunfights with the extremist group called the BIFF, and then the, some of the MILF groups who may have connections and friendship with them tried to help them, and eventually it led to the massacre of the Filipino Special Forces. And since then, the peace process in Mindanao has actually bogged down, and you have an explosion of anti-Muslim, anti-MILF sentiment across the Philippines. So unfortunately, the peace process is now bogged down, and what you see in the Philippines very frighteningly in the last four or five months is that you have some of the ISIS sympathizers such as the Abu Sayyaf group, Bangsamur Islamic Freedom Fighter, Raha Suleiman group and uh, Khalifa Islamiyah all banding together, reconsolidating themselves and now projecting themselves as the ISIS representative in Southeast Asia and they want to create a distant caliphate or vilayat which means province in Arabic. So now the Philippines is suddenly facing this very dangerous counter-terrorism challenge in Mindanao while the peace process negotiations with the IMILF have suffered a breakdown. Among all presidential candidates, it's only actually Duterte and Interior Secretary Mar Rojas who have expressed support for the current negotiation process with the MILF. Thank you for that. So you've taken us from the Moro Liberation Front to the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and lots of splinter groups and then Abu Sayyaf and you're talking now about Islamic State. So uh, Eric Gutierrez, can you assess for us how serious that is? I mean Abu Sayyaf, we've just heard the other group have got 12,000. How many people do Abu Sayyaf have and how seriously are they a branch of Islamic State? The Abu Sayyaf is just, uh, there are a few hundreds, you know, but uh, what they do is they want to have uh, some kind of high profile uh, activities, you know, like kidnapping foreigners and they have exploded some bombs in, uh, in certain areas. So it's a very small group and the way it operates is that it, it relies on, it's basically in the Basilan and Sulu Islands. So they have a very extremist agenda, but I doubt really that these guys are, you know, they seem to be more like, you know, they use Islamism as a, some kind of a cover letter can, for can whatever cause. Yeah. yeah, Pauline Edy. Yeah, I've spoken to a, a number of people to ask them to describe Abu Sayyaf and they've been described as kidnappers, bandits. Um, one of the missionaries that they um, kidnapped a few years ago, Gracia Burnham, in her book, In the Presence of My Enemies, she calls into question their religious ideology as well. And actually, she thinks that sometimes they're in league with the military who take kickbacks from their kidnapping activities the local communities actually take kickbacks as well. And during election time, 
the kidnapping goes up because they're funding the campaigns of local candidates. So their ideological commitment yeah. really is under question. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. That uh, they're more, you know, they could be classified more as criminal entrepreneurs. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. Well, we've got two versions there. Of uh, you know, that th- th- there is a real threat of. Uh, people fighting for a caliphate and that it's more of a criminal kidnapping outfit. Mm. So, what, John Seidel, can I ask you to adjudicate? Yeah, I, I don't hear that much of a difference. I mean, I, I think both commentators agree that if you look at the, the geographical location of the Abu Sayyaf, you find them in the Sulu archipelago in Basilan and parts of Sulu, um, or the southern half of Basilan and parts of Sulu, where the MILF is weak uh, and where you see them operating under the protection of local officials. I was in Sulu a couple of years ago, and, and soldiers said, well, in you know, the, the, you, you can't go to certain places, you can't operate without um, understanding that the local police are protecting these people. The idea that there is a coherent Abu Sayyaf and that it isn't in league with local officials and operating in terms of protection rackets with military and local police and political protection, I think is is unrealistic. So, so would it be right to characterise this in some ways as just a failure of the central government in the Philippines to extend its authority to outlying and remote areas? Maybe not just failure, but um, you know, a, a lack of, of real strong interest in trying to push its luck in that regard. And do the Americans take this relaxed attitude? Well, there are 400 American special forces advisors operating uh, out of Zamboanga City, and they're well aware of the reality, I think. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of their remit, what they're bil- they're really able to do, um, you know, is more containment rather than serious change. So, you, okay, but, but Pauline, I yeah, get any impression that Pauline, I get any impression this is going to carry on this okay. this insurgency, low level insurgency. Would that be right? Yeah, I mean, in part of the root base of this is part of what we come back to with the election is poverty. These people are are kidnapping um, because. It keeps local communities going as well. And part of the lack of control over these groups, you're absolutely right, Abu Sayyaf, there are different branches and groups, and if um, people get kidnapped, they're handed between different branches of the group, so it's really hard to know who to negotiate with. Um, but part of the fundamental problem is is geography. The Philippines is an archipelago. It has over 7,000 islands. It's really, really hard to police. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, it's going, Eric Gutierrez. Yeah, um, uh, one thing that's clear in those areas is there's uh, lots of uh, what has been called shadow economies going on. It's actually what allows people to survive despite you know all the deprivations and all the violence that they've seen. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, smuggling going on. There is a uh, uh, you know, the fraud in uh, taking over land and uh, trafficking. Yeah, tra- trafficking and all those things. So, uh, and uh, this was uh, one of the areas that uh, the current negotiations in the in the peace talks uh, have so far not uh, adequately dealt with. And you know, it is something that uh, needs to be put on the agenda of the next uh, president because eventually it's this uh, shadow economy that will sustain these various groups and allow them to you know to to persist and to to carry on with their activities. R- Richard Haydarian. Hey, First of all, I think we have to dispense with this idea that being a criminal group and a terrorist group are mutually exclusive. I think that's not true. I mean, if you look at Syria, if you look at a lot of groups like Jabhat al-Nusra, you look at ISIS, you know, a lot of groups use uh, kidnapping and ransom as a way to raise funds, and they could use it for ideological or ethnic interests. So I think those two are not mutually exclusive, and they can go hand in hand. But I think what we also have to keep in mind is that, you know, we are facing a renewed and perhaps even more powerful terrorism threat here in the Philippines. From 2001 to 2014, there was a very effective counter-terror cooperation between Philippines and the United States, and there was an assumption that Abu Sayyaf and other extremist groups were almost eliminated. 
right? And that is why in 2014, the United States was withdrawing some of its special forces from Zambonga and other, part, uh, other parts of Mindanao. But it was only in last year, after the breakdown in negotiations due to the Mamasapana tragedy in January of 2015, that you see now this extremist group trying to fill in, the, uh, to, take ex to exploit the power vacuum and actually establish what they feel is going to be a distant caliphate. So, unfortunately, the breakdown in the peace negotiations has given momentum to these extremist groups to step in. And these groups are actually rebranding themselves ideologically as an extension of ISIS here in Southeast Asia. And actually, under the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, which is this new security agreement that was just approved by the Philippine Supreme Court earlier this year, now the United States has been given a new basing access in Lumbia, airbase in Cagayando or in, in Mindanao, which shows how the United States is recognizing that the, the, the potential for ISIS expansion into Southeast Asia via proxies like Abu Sayyaf is serious and that we should not just dismiss this group as, you know, as criminal groups, but they could actually now also be the harbingers of an ISIS or caliphate here in Southeast Asia. Okay, th th thank you for that. And so we've had a fascinating discussion about this highly contested election, the Chinese-American contest, if you like, in the Philippines and these insurgencies uh, in the South. Can I just ask you finally, as we wrap this discussion up, each to give us a comment on how you see this election. It seems to me there is a, an issue of, of democratic development versus strongman politics that's at the heart of the choice that the Filipino voters have on Monday. So how do you see uh, the next few years as people make this decision at the ballot box? And perhaps, uh, John Seidel, I can start with you and then we'll run through the panel. Well, I think if you look back at Philippine history from independence onwards, it's pretty clear that... Um, most elections are kind of normal elections in which you have contests between candidates who are pretty much indistinguishable. Uh, but that every 15, 16, 17 years, you get a kind of wacky election like this one uh, in which the, the stakes seem to be higher and there seem to be populist or, or other kinds of candidates who threaten the establishment. And I think – uh, that sense of threat to the normality of politics in the Philippines is frightening, but it's also a healthy reminder in the long term that the Philippines is, is a democracy that's continuing to grow and evolve and become more inclusive and responsive. And in a sense, the ugliness of this election and the oddness of some previous elections, Estrada in 1998, you know, Marcos before that – are, are evidence of the, the hard work that needs to be done to address the underlying continuing problems of poverty and social inequality that will render democracy, you know, rockable, as it were, you know, in one election or another. You can't just sublimate these sorts of problems through normal politics and the kind of, you know, Coca-Cola versus Pepsi-Cola elections you otherwise would get in the country. A very sanguine view. Uh, Richard Haydarian, do you agree with it? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, my point is... I'm a little bit worried about these elections because I think this is the most polarizing elections we have seen in decades, if not the most polarizing, precisely because you have, uh, you have strongman candidates who are casting doubt on the very validity of the Filipino democratic uh, institutions. And I think this is something that is really a source of concern for me. Uh, I think what we're seeing in the Philippines is very much reminiscent of what Samuel Huntington in 1968 argued in his book, Political Order in Changing Societies, that actually countries that are rapidly growing in terms of their uh, economic development are the countries that are most vulnerable to political decay and autocratic takeover. And I think this is clearly what we see in the Philippines. There has been growth, there has been improvement, but expectations have been overriding reality on the ground. And I think the message is very clear. The Philippines will either have 
to upgrade into a genuine democracy or what we're going to see is autocratic takeover if the Philippines' cacique democracy is not improved anytime soon. And we already see a cacique democracy fatigue here in the Philippines. Eric uh, Gutierrez, what's your take? I think for the candidate, especially the leading one, Duterte, uh, winning is going to be the easy part. Uh, of the real challenge is uh, how do you consolidate after you know victory after you know post elections and the, the way he's been going at it, saying you know threatening that he will close down Congress if uh, he will be impeached and uh, you know so, so the, the candidates need to be planning for this post-election. You know how how do you put everything back together and unless you find the uh, you know this kind of a settlement with the with the uh, with the opposition and those who don't approve of his presidency he may go down like uh, you know what happened to Joseph Estrada you know that uh, after, less than 3 years after he was elected with a huge mandate you know he he was ousted uh, by a popular uprising so i think you know that's also one of the parts where Alexis is a sp- you know, one part of the whole equation, and uh, what's necessary is, you know, how do you build, how do you set up the the necessary, you know, the discussions and conversations among various groups, political parties, so that you know there can be a consolidation around some kind of, uh, you know, a program after uh, after the elections. Because you know, I, I think, I mean, bottom line is, a Duterte presidency may may, may be, you know, it it may not enjoy political stability because of uh, the way this uh, campaign has done. And as uh, Richard has been saying, it's it's uh, most polarizing. Well, so Pauline Edie is very strikingly different um, assessments, actually. What, what, what's your, your final... We're giving the last word to you. I agree with the stability issue. If Duterte comes to power on the back of a protest vote, the difficulty is that you then have to live with him as, as president for six years. And you, already people are saying they're going to be coups, he's talking to the communists, the military will not be happy if he's, he's talking to communists. And is he actually going to be able to bring in peace and order if he's using, you know, and he openly says to himself, um, violent direct measures to do that? What's it going to mean for the stability of society? What's his economic programme? How's his foreign policy going to be with other states? And also, will we have Marcos as vice president? Because I think, to an extent, the rise of Bongbong Marcos has gone under the radar because everybody's focused on Duterte. But here we will have... It's been said, a heartbeat away from the presidency. Are we going to have another Marcos in power after the next election? Yeah, well, it's a very interesting question. We did start the programme just uh, Mm. with Jonathan Head back from a bong-bong rally. And uh, who knows? We'll see. The election is on Monday. Thank you very much to Richard Haydarian, to John Seidel, to Pauline Edie and Eric Gutierrez. Uh, Just a reminder, if you want to listen back to the programme bbcworldservice.com forward slash newshour extra. If you want to write to us, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk or tweet at bbcnhextra. The podcast, you don't get it if you just have the normal Newshour feed, so you need to subscribe to it separately. It's BBC Newshour Extra, one edition each week with an hour's discussion on one topic. So that's BBC Newshour Extra podcast. But that's it for now. So from our panel and from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, Goodbye.